Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live missionary discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey. Kit, good to be with you. Hey, good to have everyone tuning in, and I can't wait to see what else we've got going. Hope you have a blessed day. Oh, it's a great show. Lots of interesting things and election talk at the end in our bricklayer segment. You can catch the Bridge Builder program each week at this time on your favorite Catholic radio station. We're all across Minnesota now, which is really exciting. Welcome to our new listeners. If you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, and we've got over 40 in our archive, you can go to mncatholic.org slash podcast, mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. And it wouldn't be The Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with a practical way that you can start laying the bricks that will build the bridge between faith and public life. We like to say that the common good is built brick by brick, hence the name Bricklayer. In today's episode, we're discussing assisted reproduction and specifically the ethical dilemma when life is created and then discarded or kept in a frozen state through in vitro fertilization, not allowing the child to grow past its very smallest stages into full life. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about upcoming presidential primaries and our political caucuses. And stick around for the bricklayer where you can learn how to bring your faith into public life in a very practical way. Today we have a great guest. Laura Elm is in studio. She is the founder of Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter. Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter is striving for a society where embryonic human beings are recognized fully and all human life is respected from conception to natural death. Laura, thanks for joining us in studio this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us about the mission of Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter and why you founded it. Okay. Well, I founded Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter, which is a mouthful of a name, so I abbreviated SHG, back in 2017. And our mission is pretty simple. Our mission is to provide corporal and spiritual care for the youngest, smallest members of our human family. And who that refers to specifically is the human beings whose lives start and end in IVF laboratories. And we do this in three ways. The first and biggest reason, the reason that I specifically founded this, was that we reach out to IVF clinics and we offer to provide burial for any of the embryos that die in their laboratories. And then we also advocate for the humanity of the embryos. And finally, we pray. We pray for these embryos. Uh, we pray for their families. Uh, we pray for all of the people who are working in the IVF industry. And we pray for people who long to be parents. I founded this as a result of a job I took. I worked in the insurance sector, and I took a job in women's health and infertility. When I took the job, I had kind of a gut feeling that professionally, as a Catholic, this might not be the best idea, but brushed it off pretty quickly. And everything went fine in the job for a while. What I did in my job really didn't get very clinical. I had no idea what an embryo was. Nobody ever told me. But I went about doing my job. Um, there was one day that I started looking closer at some of the fine print in the provider contracts, and I stumbled across a term called selective reduction. That caught my eye. 
um, I heard some of the doctors talking about abandoned embryos one day, just in passing. Um, And then some of the data that I was working with, I knew based on how IVF worked in a broad sense that more embryos were created than were transferred. Uh, But I didn't have any data that showed how many embryos were created and ultimately where they were going. The data at the embryo level really started with how many embryos are transferred to each woman per transfer, not how many are created and where the other ones go. So I started my research. Um, I had a long commute, some time to think, and started my research then where most people do on Google. And I quickly came across an amicus brief that was put out by the Thomas More Society on the Nick Loeb, Sophia Vergara uh, frozen embryo custody case. And that was written in such a way that a layperson like me could really start to get a sense as to what's going on. And then the footnotes and the citations in that case led me to the scientific evidence supporting an embryo as a human being, that if fertilization happens, the life of a unique human being has begun. And that was a game changer, and I couldn't go back. Um, Life begins at conception, even if it's in a Petri dish, right? (laughs) Right. Well, and I mean, before that, I was saying, you know, I believe life begins at conception. It was kind of this philosophical approach to where we come from. But there is molecular proof that that's when it happens, the fusion of the sperm to the membrane of the egg. From there, you know, I talked to the priest at my parish, talked to my husband, eventually (laughs) came to the decision that I needed to resign. But I also felt the need to do something. I had this feeling that there were a lot of other people in our Catholic community that really didn't know about IVF. And even more so that there is this population of people out there that are truly on the outermost fringe of society that so many people don't even know exist. And they have needs too. So I did what I did professionally. I put together a journey map of IVF from the embryo's perspective to see what their story was and what their needs were. And it became clear that their path almost always ends in death. And when they die, um, the industry calls it arrest, but when they die, they are thrown out in the red bag as medical waste or down the drain um, after treatment, down the drain and drain disposal. And I knew enough to know that no human being should be thrown out as medical waste and that this might be something that me, with no nonprofit, no organized pro-life act, you know, experience, could maybe do. This seemed doable. So I started talking to people um, Whoever would answer my emails and phone calls, putting ideas out there, seeing what stuck, and eventually landed on this, you know what, I think I can outreach to IVF clinics and see if I can uh, bury some of these people. Laura, how successful have you been in getting fertility clinics to work with you? Well, not very. Um, And I've had to redefine what that success looks like, too. So there is a little over 450 IVF clinics in the country. Most of them have multiple branches. There's one clinic that has engaged with me on burial, and they send me some of the embryos, not all but some, that arrest in their labs. And to date, we've buried um, the remains of 120 embryonic children. We have 46 more who are waiting burial in February. But redefining success now is becoming... um, If I can have a conversation with an embryologist on the phone and bring attention to the fact that that fertilized egg, that embryo, is a human being. And it's not out of malice. It's not out of any evil intent on their part. They're trying to help people have children. But the embryo becomes an agent. And the humanity of the embryo 
in and of itself is lost in the process. I think a lot of people are unaware how many embryos are created, frozen, and destroyed in the IVF process. Can you just briefly walk through that for us? Where do the, I mean, you talked a little bit about where the embryos go. They're put in the red bag in many instances. Some are frozen, some are put in cryo storage, but walk through that process a little bit and just give us a sense of the scope of IVF, whether it's in the, at the micro level or at the macro level. Okay. So this is a really big problem. Um, There is some transparency in IVF, but not a whole lot when it comes to the embryo itself. I do believe that some of the data is collected. Um, IVF clinics are required to report on some data to the CDC about each cycle, but I don't know if data on the embryo is required. If it is, it's certainly not published, like some of the other statistics are. So we know that with IVF, more embryos are created, and it all comes down to the drug protocols stimulating the ovaries. So instead of one healthy egg per ovary per month, we could get up to 10 to 15. That's kind of the average yield. Um, some women it's less, some women it's more. It's very variable. In 2016, there were, I have my notes here because I have to look at the numbers too. Some of this is publicly available data. But in 2016, there were over 263,000 cycles started. Uh, That resulted in 76,930 babies being born. If you look at some kind of obscure studies that actually get at ratios, for those 76,000 babies to be born, there were probably just under a million embryos created. Probably around 60% of those died in the lab. The other 40% were probably either frozen or transferred to a uterus. And then we know that once they are transferred, it's kind of a 30%, give or take a little bit, depending on the woman's age, if they actually are born live. So for those babies to be born, there were probably upwards of like 575,000 embryos that died in the process. That's an important statistic because in thinking about the abortion problem in this country, that's about how many abortions are taking place in the United States every year. And so what you're sharing with us today is that about that same number are created through the IVF process and either destroyed or put into cryo storage. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's no requirement on reporting on those cryopreserved embryos. And they're under lab counters in the clinics. They're stored in third-party storage at the back of manufacturing or warehouse facilities. Some people would say that there's more than a million cryopreserved embryonic children in the U.S. Some people would say there's more than a million in Chicago. So we really have no idea how many there are. But that number is growing at an exponential Um, accelerating rate is what I should say, because banking cycles where there is no transfer and frozen embryo transfers are starting to outpace fresh transfers where the embryo goes straight from lab to uterus. We're speaking with Laura Elm today. Laura is the founder of Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter. It's both a ministry and it's quickly becoming an advocate for the tiniest of people, our embryonic brothers and sisters. Laura, if life begins at conception, then these embryos that you're speaking about created in uh, assisted reproduction and IVF cycles, these are human beings, yet there is almost virtual silence from the pro-life community about IVF and assisted reproduction. Why do you think that's the case? Well, definitively, yes, life does begin at conception. It just does. I have some hypotheses as to why this is, um, but still being pretty early in this ministry, not a whole lot to back it up. So if you want to know what I think at this time, I'm happy to share it. You know, I think one of the biggest things is that people don't understand how IVF works. Correct. I I think that's it. And it is, it's fairly complicated. It's pretty technical. 
And we don't have a whole lot of reproductive endocrinologists who have come out of the practice of human embryology to give us an insider's look. I think with abortion, we're starting to have more people come out of the industry and talk about it. We don't have that with IVF yet. So if there's any reproductive endocrinologist or human embryologist out there who's ready to take a big leap out, you know where to find us. Um, So people don't understand. You know, I think that maybe also IVF is more socially acceptable. And there's a really big fear. I have it about talking out against IVF when I have friends who've done it, friends who are wonderful, loving parents who wouldn't have had children otherwise. Um, I think people who are in pro-life have done IVF themselves. Their children are conceived from IVF. And I want to be really clear that it does not matter how a person is conceived um, in love, out of love, in marriage, out of marriage, you know, naturally or in a dish. If that person is here, that person is good, They are perfectly created, a child of God, meant to love and be loved. And if they are here, they are supposed to be here. And, you know, that's the message with this also, is that um, all human life is good. And, you know, sometimes in our desperation, we do things that only at the end of the journey can we look back and see, you know, how our fear stood in between us and God's will for us. All human life is good, but not every way of creating life is consistent with his plan. So one of the things we need to consider and think about is the fact that there are all these embryos and little people being created through assisted reproduction. And if we're going to protect them and make sure that more this doesn't proliferate, and you said it's increasing in an accelerated way, we need to start having conversations with people about the injustice of assisted reproduction And that's difficult, as you said, because people want children. And when they struggle with infertility, they turn to technology, they turn to science, they turn to IVF and assisted reproduction for that. What, in your experience, has been effective or have you been able to have conversations about with people about just bringing attention to the reality of what an IVF process means and what it means for all those little people who are created through that process? Mm -hmm. You know, because I always assume that somebody else knows what they're talking about. And what I've learned... Don't do that. (laughs) What I've learned to do is to ask, what does that mean? You know, when somebody is talking about IVF and they're talking about the fertilized egg or they're talking about the egg, you know, what does that mean? Can you help me understand what we're actually talking about here? And then you kind of get to a, a shared baseline of, okay, they may not know that there is a substantial difference between an egg which is a reproductive cell, it's a gamete, it's important, but it is not a fertilized egg, which is an embryo, which is a human being. And starting to, you know, ask questions and have kind of the back and forth dialogue to get to a point where we're both speaking the same language. I think anything in IVF, never ever be afraid to ask, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of terminology that is very confusing. Indeed. Besides the ministry that you've been pursuing with fertility clinics and working with people, you've started to look at some public policy solutions and ways in which this problem can be mitigated. So besides banning assisted reproduction, which doesn't seem to be on the horizon, although it would be perfectly consistent with our Catholic faith, what are some things that we can start doing to mitigate the proliferation of IVF and the destruction of embryos through assisted reproduction technologies? What you just said, that's part of my super sophisticated prayer that I do specifically for IVF on Fridays is um, for IVF workers to please stop. 
just mm-hmm. stop. Um, I want to come <laughs> back to that prayer, that prayer ministry and important because I think that's important and I think you really hit on something. But we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's talk about the, the policy for a moment. Yeah, I think the first thing we need to do is to halt the rate this accelerating rate of utilization of IVF. There's a lot of movement from IVF industry and their advocacy groups to mandate that IVF is a covered health benefit. It's showing up in states. New York was just the most recent that it got added. I think there's something actively going on in Colorado, and there's things that are being pushed on at different states to include this in the upcoming sessions. It just can't happen. And it's very logical about why it can't happen is that IVF, I'm going to really say something strong, IVF is not healthcare. You know, healthcare diagnoses and treats a person's underlying condition, which manifests as infertility. IVF is creating a new person in the lab. They're very distinct things. And even though the end is good, the desire for a child, that means itself it's not, it's not healthcare. And we can't open that door to a society where we say, yep, it's okay to make human beings in a lab for any purpose. And yet we're seeing legislation here in Minnesota, House File 2867 and Senate File 2776, to make infertility treatment um, and IVF a mandated coverage component of health insurance programs. It's going to drive up the cost mm-hmm. of everyone else's health care. And as Laura said, is not health care. And infertility is very real. I mean, mm-hmm. it is increasing, um, and we do need more attention on it, how to prevent it, how to treat it, but how to treat it with evidence-based medicine that respects both the potential parents as well as the potential children. Yeah, where can infertile couples go the, who are experiencing these challenges but want to do so and receive treatment and receive assistance consistent with their Catholic faith? There are different resources, and one of the places that I would start is the Catholic Medical Association. The Catholic Medical Association has Find a Doctor sites, and then you can look by state to see if there are registered Catholic OBGYNs. Um, If you are a Catholic OBGYN and you are not on the Catholic Medical Association site, please go and register because we need a bigger list of more doctors who understand our faith and our goals for our family. I think you can also go to the Archdiocese. There's different resources at the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, and then the USCCB. And then, of course, there's the National Catholic Bioethics Center, too. They have good resources on how to grow a family that's faithful to our Catholic faith. And, of course, there's the Pope Paul VI Institute out of Nebraska, and they specialize in NAPRO technology and assisting couples with uh, who are struggling with infertility. So there's some great resources out there. You can do this. It's a challenge and, and a difficulty for many who struggle with it, but there is hope. Laura, say a little bit about the prayer component of your ministry, and I think that's great. And sometimes we forget the power of prayer and having a specific intention of our prayer, but you've really brought that um, as a focus to your ministry. So share with us a little bit about your prayer with regard to Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter and its work. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much believe in prayer. I very much believe in miracles. Um, As a human being, a flawed one, sometimes when a miracle happens, I'm pretty quick to dismiss it as something that just makes sense. But I do believe in both prayer and in miracles. And um, there are five intentions that I would ask people to pray for. Um, I take these intentions with me before the Blessed Sacrament in adoration on Fridays. Um, And it works really well with a rosary um, if you're doing a decade for each of it. The five things that I would ask people to pray for would be, one, to pray for children who are conceived from IVF, as well as for those embryonic children who are living in labs. 
Please pray for the embryonic children who are living in cryopreservation. Pray for their families. Pray for people who long to become parents who were born with a mother or a father's heart but don't have a child to hold yet. And then finally, please pray for all of the people who are working in IVF um, that they can have some clarity, a bit of an awakening, and the bravery to step away. That's amazing. You've got an, a, a, an intention for every decade of the rosary. It's like the infertility assisted reproduction rosary. It's it's really beautiful and praying with a, in a specific way for people, not just those who are struggling with infertility, but the clinic workers and also those children who are conceived through assisted reproduction. So that's really a beautiful ministry. Laura, what else should people know about embryos, assisted reproduction, IVF, or anything related to the ministry of Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter? Well, you can find us. We do have a website. I made it. Don't laugh. It's kind of a do-it-yourself sort of project. Um, It's www.sacredheartguardians.org. There's a contact us button on there, and you can subscribe. We have a newsletter that we send out with um, news and updates and a little bit of Embryology 101. Um, You can send me an email. I'll send you some of the prayer cards. I actually have a prayer card with those five intentions and then an image of Jesus with the Sacred Heart on the front. I'd be happy to send uh, one or several out to you or to your parish if you'd like to include that in your personal or your parish's um, prayer life. I'm happy to do that, too. Are you willing to speak to parish pro-life groups about this issue? Definitely. I will speak to one person or I will speak to a hundred. It doesn't matter. I think each and Every person who is interested in learning more about this can make a huge difference. We've had the blessing today to speak with Laura Elm, founder of Sacred Heart Guardians and Shelter, who's bringing attention to an important component, an emerging component of what a complete pro-life ministry looks like, um, helping and assisting those who are struggling with infertility, but bringing more attention to the reality of the many embryos created through assisted reproduction and IVF. Laura, thanks so much. God bless your ministry. And people can find out more about her and what she's doing at sacredheartguardians.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag, where we field your comments and questions. Kit, what have you got in the mailbag segment today? This week's question has to do with the upcoming primary voting and caucuses. It's been a long time since Minnesota actually held primaries for a presidential race, and So this has many people wondering what to expect and whether primaries are somehow doing away with caucusing. Can you give us a primary primer? So uh, in order to facilitate more engagement with the presidential primary, Minnesota has moved it out of its caucus system, which still exists, um, but it's going to have its own primary on March 4th. And so what that will allow people to do is if you're willing to register as being affiliated with one of the major political parties and you have to take an oath um, saying that your your beliefs are consistent with the party platforms, which is odd because the party platforms and the parties, the, their viewpoints seem to be changing uh, depending on uh, the, the mood swing of the country. Um, you can vote in the presidential primary. Obviously, uh, there's more, com, uh, more of a contested primary on the Democratic side this year with a number of candidates running, uh, but at this, on the Republican side, there will be one candidate in Minnesota on the 
ballot, and that's President Donald Trump. So this is really something that's more uh, of importance to folks who are interested in weighing in on the Democratic side of the aisle. But it's a primary system. Like I said, you've got to register and affiliate with a party, and then you can vote. The caucus system, though, is still important and is still going to be taking place in late February. And what's important to know about the caucus system is that's the place in which uh, party platforms are developed. So people can bring caucus resolutions to those caucuses, and then those can sort of make their way through the process from the very local level at the basic party unit all the way through um, up until the state convention of each political party. And so along the way, you can become a delegate and help your resolution get passed. So caucuses are really an important way in which we shape the direction of parties. We pick candidates and endorse candidates for local office. So those those caucuses, which are going to be happening on February 25th, are really, really important in that regard. So even though we have a presidential primary, we still have a caucus system as well. Those two dates are now separate from each other, um, but the caucus system is still happening. Great. Thanks, Jason. So we're always talking about how to begin building bridges between our faith and public life how to become a better disciple even when it comes to politics. And, of course, this wouldn't be the Bridge Builder Show if we didn't somehow help our listeners learn ways to start building that bridge one brick at a time. So, Jason, what practical tips have we got in this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, it builds on something I mentioned a moment ago about caucuses and the importance of bringing resolutions. Very few people actually participate in the caucus process. So a very small number of people, really just in the tens of thousands, end up making the party platforms and the policies that shape those party platforms we don't like the state of the political process. For many of us, it's a real challenge. We don't. We feel like we're politically homeless. Catholics are always feeling politically homeless. But what can we do about it? So one thing to do about it, besides joining a third party, uh, which is always a possibility as well, something like the American Solidarity Party, for example, has a number of Catholics participating in that. But if we're interested in engaging the two major political parties, then the caucus is a great way to do that. And putting forward resolutions that shape the party platform. If we don't like what the parties are advocating for, why not engage that process and be a, play a role in it? In 2016, uh, Minnesota Catholic Conference really pushed out and encouraged caucus participation, and many, many Catholics participated uh, in those caucuses for the very first time, and we heard so many great stories about how people were energized by that process and really felt like they had a voice in a way they hadn't before. So just as we did in 2016, we are putting up and making available a number of proposed resolutions. You don't even have to come up with them. We'll help you uh, with the resolution. We provided those resolutions on our website at mncatholic.org. You can bring those directly to your caucus and put those in and have those voted on by that local caucus unit and then try to work those through the process, build support for those. It's kind of like a little democracy within the parties itself. And you vote those caucuses through, and then they move on to the district convention, the Senate district conventions, and then ultimately to the state convention to be voted on by all the delegates who make their way through the party process. Now, if you really want to ensure success of your resolution, it's good to get elected to go through the process and become a delegate ultimately to the state convention of the chosen political party. But Either way, those resolutions can make their way into the process and hopefully onto the party platform. So really an important way in which we can participate in shaping the platforms of the public party, of the political parties, instead of them shaping us. 
And oftentimes it seems that um, because we have a passion or are concerned about one issue, we give a pass to the political parties on other issues when we really need to be shaping the political parties instead of them shaping us. So go to mncatholic.org, uh, identify those resolutions that you're interested in putting forward in the caucuses, and then show up at your caucuses uh, in late February. That's all the time we have for today. But remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you will help others bring the Catholic faith into public life. Becoming a sponsor of The Bridge Builder Show is a great opportunity for business and organizations to advertise. Contact our producer, Kit Cross, via our show email, show at mncatholic.org, for sponsorship opportunities. Listeners, you can also be part of The Bridge Builder through our mailbag segment. Just send any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember, you can catch up on any past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week at the same time with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.